We heard something from Elephant Man. It was Ra Ra off of the Rhythm Driven Ra Ra compilation. And now we're finishing up with Mr. Vegas and Sergio Mendez doing Bananaria off of an album called Timeless. That's what you've been hearing. And like I said, next up is The Living Writers. Stay tuned to WCBN. WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Liberty, justice, equality. Maybe in the 21st century. I'm having the same problem. I burned the flag for you, baby. young I used to wait on master and bring him his plate and pass a bottle when he got dry and brush away the blue tail fly Jimmy crack corn and I don't care Jimmy crack corn and I don't care Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Vivi Francis, author of Blue Tail Fly. And we were just heard Alan Lomax, Chet Washington, Odetta Gordon, and Pete Seeger, among others, reading an old version of the song. Um, the book is a book of poems. It's her first, and it was named by Poets and Writers Magazine as one of the 12 notable debut books for 2006. By V. Francis is both a Cave Canem and a Kalalu Fellow, and her poems have appeared in the Crab Orchard Review, Margie, Kalalu, and the anthology Never Before, Poems of First Experiences, among other. She facilitates writing workshops in Detroit, and it's so lovely to have you. Thanks for coming to vacation over here in Ann Arbor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's great being here. Yeah, yeah and uh, we, we understand you have a little bit of a cold today, so... Uh, yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> We're still going to make you read and talk. <laughs> okay, I'll sound sexy and smooth. I hope. That's it. Great. Well, if you, you read a little bit from the book and get us started, then we'll, um, we'll launch into some chatting about it. 1864, a pocket full of rye. Confederate, anticipating colored Union troops. The trees are so full in this light. Green petticoats, the balls will mow flat. If I hide tonight beneath a mound of dirt, I will still die. Trampled by boot, or impaled on the dark beak of a rifle. I long for my field, my plow, my good wife, the farm and its smell. It took two years to clear a small plot. I took down the black gums with swings I then thought mighty, muled the stumps, fought the weed, spread the mulch, succulent as flowers. I miss my daughters. Hear that? A rumble rage from the portholes, and I would have it over soon and done. I won't survive these musings. Into the pitch, the cause, the crows rising quick, as if suddenly freed from some great pie, a mad and mocking flock. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much. That's Vivi Francis reading from her book of poems called Blue Tail Fly. And before we started the show today, you were telling me that the last time you were here was when you were a spoken word artist and that you are a self-taught mm-hmm. poet. Um, and um, you were saying that, that like many folks who have taught themselves, work comes from many different places. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about how this book came together. It's um, largely a collection of persona poems that yes. take place in the 19th century in the Civil War, the Mexican-American War. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about the, 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 the beginning, the seeds of this one. Well, there are, there are about three or four threads. Uh, the first being um, just an interest um, in the Civil War. My, my dad's a Vietnam veteran. And he always had a strong interest in the Civil War. I actually dedicate the book to him. And the more I read about the Civil War, really the more I wanted to write something about the colored Union troops. Um, when they enter the war, they, they literally turn the war. Um, and the title, I, I want to talk a little about the title itself. I um, was just doing some reading, and I knew Jimmy Crack Corn. I, I knew the chorus, but I never knew any of the verses. And then I ran across um, the verse. Uh, the pony run, he jump, he pitch. He threw his master in a ditch. He died, and the jury wondered why. The verdict was the blue tail fly, Jimmy Crack Corn, and I don't care. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible metaphor for these u- black Union troops who are seemingly um, so unimportant, you know, but like that fly that bites the hind of the horse that bucks the master and kills him, they, you know, they come in near the end of the war and they're fierce. They're, they're amazing. And um, so I titled it Blue Tail Fly. So there, there's that, my interest in those colored Union troops. And then my grandmother, who was in her 90s, told me a story about my um, about her grandparents, um, a Confederate, an Irish Confederate, who illegally married um, a newly freed slave woman, and they ran off to East Texas, and I'm born in Texas. And I thought the story was so amazing that I, I put that into a sonnet crown. And then, you know, I'm Texan, Texas-born anyway. Um, so it's hard to write about the Civil War without writing about the Mexican War. Because that, that period really kind of helps us know Lincoln and Zachary Taylor and, and it kind of sets everything in motion. So all of those things started going through my head and I was writing poems here and there. And um, I lived down in Tennessee for a little while going to Fisk University. And I was sitting in the um, famous cemetery in Franklin, all these Confederate soldiers buried there. And I wrote a singular dispersion over Franklin, Tennessee. So, I mean, so many things started to just move around in my head. And before I knew it, I thought maybe I could pull these disparate poems together. And, um, and I think they're pretty effectively um, woven together here. Well, it's very interesting to me to hear that you didn't write the book as a book, as sort of a concept book, that they were um, pulled together from different... Right. Because, in fact, the book coheres in a way that um, that feels as if it were intended to 
originally. <laughs> but it just turns out that it worked out really well because there are, there are many, many theme texts out there right now. And I'm not part of that group that hates the theme text. I love a novel in verse. I love a good story. And if that comes out in verse or if it comes out in prose, I'm, I'm happy either way. So while my... Um, uh, the current manuscript I'm working on is not themed. I I like the way this came out, you know. And um, I, I had been reading um, Avan Jordan's Magnolia, which uh, definitely was themed with intent around um, the young black woman who uh, won the national, or almost won the national spelling bee in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But then uh, a Southern judge gives her the word nemesis, which is not on her list, which is interesting since... Nemesis, isn't that the um, goddess of vengeance or something like this? You know, there are all these ironies, you know. So um, she doesn't win and her life kind of spirals downward. Um, I read it and it was so evocative, uh, so amazing. And I was also reading on on the other end, Brian Dietrich's Krypton Nights. I mean, it's it's all Superman all day. (laughs) And it's absolutely marvelous, you know. So I think... It was easier for me to make the poems, you know, to bind them together because I had been reading so many themed texts anyway. So I think already I kind of had a, a mind for pulling, pulling it together once I saw that there was like a core group of poems. Well, and I wonder if we could talk a little bit for a moment about the poems themselves. They're they're largely from different perspectives. The the um, one you read to open um, Lincoln at some point is there. Zach Taylor is there. Right, um, freed right. slaves, um, Union soldier, color part of the colored regiment. Yes, um, mm-hmm. women working and slaves. They they all sort of take the first person mm-hmm. singular, the I, throughout the book. Um, what made you choose to write? Is this something that you do with all of your work, or was it is is it just particular to these poems? I do write a lot of persona poems. Um, and I would say, well, the large body of my work is is in persona poems, although not the not the book coming up. But um, when when I was fifteen, um, I read Browning. Um, I remember the poem. I remember the moment. Um, I read Soliloquy of the Spanish Cloister. And oddly enough, I started to cry. I, I can't tell you to this day why I started to cry. I, um, I mean, the, the, the monk who was, he was the speaker in the poem, you know, he's kind of cruel, you know, <laughs> and this type yeah. of thing. But I, I was so stunned that someone could write in another voice that way and make it so real, you know. And um, then I was impacted again when I was 18. I read um, The Poet I, um, out of the Southwest, like myself. And um, I read poems from her first book, Cruelty. And it was astonishing. She took on so many voices, and she was uh, the people she spoke of. I mean, it was just, it was, I, I can't even think about it or talk about it now without kind of tearing up because it was just so amazing and I think that kind of set the tone for my own poetry I wanted to write in disparate voices I've lived in many many places I've traveled to many places I'm impacted by many different peoples and I I love speaking in various voices 
And I think it requires a, a certain amount of empathy, um, which I think I've developed because of life experiences. Um, I was born in the Jim Crow South, the, the end of the Jim Crow South. I wanted to transcend it. I wanted to be past it. I didn't want to be the people that hurt me. Um, and the only way I found to do that was to try to understand them, which is why I would write in a Confederate cemetery. Um, I can write in a Confederate cemetery and look at those tombstones and ache for men too young to go to war and die. Um, and by the same token, um, I was at Williamsburg to do research for this book, and they have um, a slave exhibit. I mean, the young African Americans, you know, pretending to be slaves, and and you, you start to really believe it when you're when you're walking through this plantation area, and I and I feel the ache is the same for me. Um, I don't know if that's anomalistic. I don't know if there's something wrong with that, but for me. Um, Pain is subjective, and whenever I take on another's voice, I begin to feel it. And the persona poem helps me work out uh, issues around forgiveness, issues around reconciliation, um, issues around uh, mercy. You know, and and so I I think that that's always going to be a primary part of my oeuvre. Is it something too that you then hope your readers will also experience that 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 people will develop this sense of empathy that they haven't? Yes, I I really hope so. And I, I don't I don't know if that happens in this text, but I hope so. Um, and it's difficult. For example, um, I am not fond of Taylor or Polk. I don't like them. If I met them, I wouldn't like them. <laughs> and uh, taking on the voice of someone. I, I really don't like it. It's so, it's painful almost, you know. Um, you but I wanted to keep it authentic. So I had to kind of see things through their eyes and I didn't like what I saw. Yeah. Well, and then did you have to um, sort of duke it out with yourself to continue to be them to do justice to the particular poem or to the particular person? Yes. Was it was it an allegiance to the poem or and the overall project or to the person whose um, person you were becoming? To the person I was becoming. Because when you read the book, when you read the words of, because I actually open the Pope poems with a quote from his diary, when you read the words themselves, if you stay true to that person, then their character will show. And the character I didn't like shows through, you know, in his voice is an imperialist voice. It's um, a voice that, it, uh, it's the voice of manifest destiny. It's the voice that says, this is owed to me and I'm going to take it. So if I had written for the overall project, then that imperialism wouldn't come through. You know, I would try to, to mitigate it some kind of way. And I wanted it to come through. I wanted to have people read what I believe he actually was, you know. And um, the same for Lincoln. I, uh, I know that there are some places that will not use my book as a text because Lincoln, he doesn't come off so well in not, my no, book. No, not in the normal, not, <laughs> not in the sort of textbook fashion of Lincoln's, Lincoln's legacy. <laughs> in my family, you know, they'll hang Lincoln's picture on the wall, but I, 
have mixed feelings about Lincoln, you know. So um, it's part of why I use a lot of quotations in the book as well, uh, just to kind of set the tone and, and to keep myself true to the voice. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Vivi Francis, and we're talking about her book, Blue Tail Fly. We'll be right back. Helen Wolf singing Helen for my darling and uh, thank you for for suggesting the music today well, we, during the break we were talking about um, the Jimmy Crack Corn or also known as Blue Tail Fly the, the, the yeah. song um, and you said you met Pete Seeger when you were in college at Fisk I did um, when I was at Fisk University there were um, about 550 students very small private school in Nashville and um, Pete Seeger uh, came through. We we had marvelous people come through, but almost no one showed up. And uh, I was editing the school newspaper at the time, so I'm like, great. There's almost no one here, and I'm going to have a great interview. So we went to lunch uh, in the cafeteria, and I couldn't believe it. it. Was one I love folk music, so I'm sitting here with Pete Seeger, and he starts telling these marvelous stories. Um, about Paul Robeson and Paul Robeson's son, who he knew, and oh, I mean, it, it was, it was just tremendous. He's he's a storyteller from from way back, just great, you know. So yeah, that was a that was a good moment. Oh, wonderful. Well, um, let's talk while we're while we're at Fisk with Pete Seeger. Let's talk a little bit about um, Kaveh Kanem and Kalalu. Um, you're a fellow for both of those groups or two and a part of both of those groups. And I wonder if you would talk to us a little bit, first tell us a little bit about what the, the two, what those mean, what Kaveh Kahneman and Kalalu, not our whole audience will well, um, Kalalu is a, a journal put out um, by uh, Dr. Charles Rao. And um, there's also a conference, a Kalalu conference. Um, and uh, it was being held at um, Texas A&M. And in 2003, um, I was able to attend the Callaloo workshops. They're highly competitive, so I, I got in uh, by the skin of my teeth. I was number 11, and I think uh, number 9 got married or something. So, <laughs> so I was one of the 10 that was able to get in. But once I was there, it was an amazing experience. You've got um, prose writers as well, 10 um, new poets and 10 uh, new prose writers, I believe. So you've got Percival Everett, who's you know, kind of like a cult figure. People love his novels. And then I studied with uh, Ritika Vazirani. Um, and, you know, you get to sit down with Yusef Komunyaka and this type of thing. So it's a great opportunity. And Dr. Rowell is 
just one of those figures who changes the poetic landscape. Um, um, they take on African American poets and they broaden you. You know, and he keeps the landscape broad. He doesn't see black poetry as something that's narrow um, with one voice, which is part of why I absolutely love the man. He sees uh, black poetry as something that is vast. And it, it's more like your, your being African-American informs the poem as opposed to makes the poem. And uh, I agree with that. Um, so anything I write is informed by my African-Americanness. So I don't necessarily have to do what was done 40 and 30 years ago, which is state that I'm black in every poem. Right. It, it becomes self-evident. It, um, it's just a natural, organic part of uh, the poem, as my being a woman becomes a natural and organic part of the poem and uh, or the voice of the poem. And is this more a, a sort of um, identification with an actual? I mean, um, Ridika Vajarani is South Asian. She's, yes, she's from Indian, India. although she mm-hmm. married Komanyaka. Yes, um, and they had a son together. But she's she's not African American and is a part of this group. And you studied with her while you were there. Yes, because Doctor Doctor he's open. You know, he's open minded, um, and she actually. Uh, I think she grew up around Howard University. Her father um, was at Howard, um, a dentist, I believe, or teaching, something like this for a while. So she was deeply engaged with the African-American community, had a, a long and wonderful um, uh, paternal relationship with um, Dr. Rao. And um, she is a classicist. She had a way of taking a poem in and just just a finely wrought poem. Um, she was obsessive around poetry. Um, she had studied with Derek Walcott. She understood the world voice, if you will. And that was her main concern, um, the movement of peoples from uh, nation to nation and how they negotiated these movements. Um, just an incredible writer. Uh, I was honored to study with her, despite the ending. <laughs> you know, um, she uh, committed suicide about six weeks after those workshops. Oh, I didn't realize it was so. It was very close. close. On the heels. Very close. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, uh, uh, White Elephants, World Hotel—they're just—they're uh, on both on Copper Canyon, I believe. Just worthy books to read. Amazing poetry. Who knows what she would have written had she lived. So, yeah, it's a great loss. Um, so you studied with her, and um, did you study poetry also at Fisk? Or you, you, you mentioned before the, the um, show started that you're largely a self-taught poet. What do you mean by that? Is that well, I was an English major at Fisk, and I, I studied literature. I studied the novel. Um, I didn't really take any poetry classes or anything like that. Um, by the time I got to Fisk, I, I had been writing for a while, and um, they would give me features. The, the English <laughs> department would set up readings for me, and I would read. And so I, I was really learning on my own. Uh, there was one instructor there, uh, Paula Roper, um, and she's uh, a Yates scholar. Um, 
I did get some uh, training from her, but it was more like an apprenticeship with a mentor. So as far as a, a structured class, uh, I just didn't have any. Um, I learned by reading and by talking to poets that were further along than myself. Although I'm not saying everyone should do that. I think I might have had a book 10 years earlier had I done the MFA. Really? Yeah. Um, although I don't regret my path, uh, I, I wouldn't tell anyone to necessarily follow this path. Why is that? Is it is it a sort of sign of the times? Because the MFA phenomenon is relatively new. It, it is new, um, yes. Is that just sort of now the... What makes that the path that you would recommend versus the one that you have taken yourself? Well, I can't say I'd recommend that either. I, I think <laughs> I think um, a poet who, who really who really wants to wrestle with the language, who really wants to do this, you kind of have to make your own path. Um, but being self-taught, it's kind of like clawing your way through. You know, you have to be really disciplined. You have to be methodical. Um, the reading has to be uh, constant, and even then, there'll still be, there will still be holes in your knowledge. and And I think a structured program can kind of fill in those gaps. But on the other hand, um, there are no rules. There's no one telling you what you can and can't do with your voice. So you're more likely to experiment and go out on limbs. And I've gone out on many limbs, <laughs> you know? but um, I. Uh, it, well, I think they commented on it in poets and writers um, that I have been considering the MFA very, very seriously. Well, and you and I, after we all of these year, years, yeah, we, we, we talked a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, uh, we'll we'll see what happens. I'm not going to say more than that. <laughs> I don't want to jinx myself, but we'll see what happens. And also, um, I'd like uh, a page oriented community that that would be nice and very different. I've been in. Um, performance communities. You were a spoken word artist for some years. I was. I started out on the page, but um, although you can't tell by my voice today, I, I had a voice that was kind of given to performance. So I kind of got pulled into performance and uh, did that for a long time. But I found my husband, uh, I'm married to uh, Matthew Scott Olsman, he can do both performance poetry and he can write for the page. And the conventions are different, you know. And he can do both. He can work both arms. But me, it takes me so long to write a poem. Uh, I need all of my mind to negotiate the page. So I really can't do the theater arts and page at the same time. Well, let's um, have a, a good example of that. Um, the you wrote a sonnet crown um, that is in the voices of your great 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 grandparents. Is that right? Um, or your grandmother's actually, grandparents? My great great grandparents. Okay, there which, we go. Because they're they're just long lived people. So, and I wonder if you would just read one um, one piece from each your the voice of Callie and the voice of Andrew. Okay. Um, and these are, before you do though, if you would sort of tell our listeners what a sonic crown is, um, so they'll have an idea of the kind of craft that goes into doing something like this. Um, I have seven sonnets here and they're linked by the uh, last line. Um, the last line is 
similar to the first line of the next sonnet. So that's where the linking comes in, the last and the first line. And these are um, Shakespearean sonnets. These are, you know, uh, fairly easy. I um, um, Fairly easy to gather, not easy to write. Um, I did it in syllabics instead of the traditional meter. And even then, I took some more liberties, you know. And I think uh, this crown, it took about two years to write. Um, and these are um, two in a row. So when you read the second one, we'll hear the last line reiterated sort of in the, in the next one. Yes. Okay. Callie, I pleaded, begged, carry me back today to Ireland with you. Sing as how there were no for true slaves there anyhow. English masters, he huffed. I huffed, do say. So I'm planted here to have these children coming quick and know nothing green as grasshoppers in April. I blame his hound's ass that half are reds, but that is not the sin. It's those that look like me I can't abide. I think about all the trouble curried in this territory where a knotted head may rock above its own rotting hide at any pale whim. Now I know that freedom is only a beginning, half the sum. Andrew. In the beginning, some of the red oaks reminded her of madmen with whip hands. But I saw dusk sifting leaves like sand through the fingers, breaking Mississippi's yoke, that muddy hold. She thinks I keep her in these woods for shame or for adventure, but she's wrong. I laid the long boards under our bed, and my devotion is as certain as the dog's thump against them. I won't run, and I won't let her run away from me. Here is where I staked my claim. Truly, the bounty to be had will be hard won, but the clay of God's promise has been found to the east of Texas. We both are bound. Um, it, it was one of the my favorite stories that my grandmother told me. So you have Andrew, um, a Confederate, and uh, Callie, his wife. And I, I have to admire that he married this woman in an age where that wouldn't happen. You could have the woman without marrying her or ever acknowledging her. Married her, they had several children. And they ran away from Mississippi, um, where it was illegal to do this, to uh, East Texas, you know, like pioneers, if you will. And um, um, half the children looked like him, <laughs> and half looked like her. Uh, but she was afraid for them. So um, I love the story. It's a beautiful story and a beautiful sequence of poems. That was Vivi Francis reading from her book, Blue Tail Fly, and that is the sonnet crown called 1880, The Binding Tie. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. It's the top of the hour, and we're going to take a short break. Without a warning, you broke my heart. Took it, darling, and you tore it apart. You left me sitting in the dark crying. You said your love for me was dying. I'm begging you, baby. 
Let it shine, 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 let it shine. We're back. That was the Bobby Blue Band singing Turn on Your Love Light. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Vivi Francis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you again for having me. And you've driven all the way over from Detroit. <laughs> yes, I did. I like to say I vacationed in Ann Arbor. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in this last segment of the show, we'll talk a little bit about the Detroit poetry scene, but I wonder if you would start us off with a poem from your new manuscript. Um, this work is very different from the work that's in Blue Tail Fly, yes. and so if you'll give us a little sort of um, foundational intro to what you're working on and then read a poem for us. Well, I gathered uh, together several poems that have been published um, in various journals and such. And then there was just new work. Um, I married about a year and a month ago. So my voice shifted. And I swore if I got married, my voice wasn't going to change, but it did. And, and um, so uh, I, I started writing poems. I, if I were going to pull them together, right now the working title is Humaniora, or The Study of Humanity. Um, so they go all over the world and all over the place. Um, some of them are actually written in the eye, which, which is uh, the eye is in you, the eye, not I, you, someone else. me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not me as someone else. So, uh, so it's scary territory for me, but um, but uh, I, I'm actually enjoying it. There's actually some humor, um, uh, as well as uh, my considerations around war. There are a lot of poems on um, Rwanda, et cetera. Um, this one I'm going to read is called The Principles of Vashtu as Applied to This House. And it's a system older than feng shui, and uh, it's said to influence it. O oh God of structures, we are your devotees. Uh, prayer from the Rig Veda. Harmony, Lord of structure, white as plaster, stares down the clutter, demands a clearing, a navel free of lint. Say, no longer tied to my mother, I must do this myself. To appease, offer a bowl of plums, a fountain at eye level, a man with a lotus in his palm. Balance rests with forty-five gods, or one at the center, the heart and its moods shifting left, shifting right. Say, a bowl of lemons replaces flower and vase, then the odor of sanctity, though bitter, draws the eye. An even number of windows, an even number of doors. Countries at war crave this stability. Those who can count can build and war no more. Continuity, a square, a rectangle, a simple plan. To the southeast put your kitchen, to the west put your bed. Fold linens at right angles, each room gives and takes. The blueprint is feminine, mandala, Oriola, egg, and the grid divided, male, squared into infinity, a thousand thousand seeds on edge. Thank you. 
Now, you said your voice changed um, when you got married. Yeah. Now, is that a product of being in love, or is that a product of marrying a poet, a man who's also a poet? Or, um, <laughs> I think both. <laughs> is there think something both. else going on there? Is um, the, what's fun, this isn't feng shui. What's the precursor? Vashti. Uh, Vash, Vash, yeah, a product of Vashti. <laughs> where did the well, change come? Um, for, well, this poem, I was actually thinking about where to put things in our flat. We live in a flat where to arrange things. Um, and I started reading books I would never have read, like how to make things harmonious in your house. <laughs> Just things I, I never considered Never had before. a need to do that before. Right. <laughs> and, um, and suddenly poems are coming out about these things that... that, that I just never considered as poetic fodder, if you will. And, um, and I'm loving it. I'm, I'm thinking about relationships um, in a different kind of way and uh, intimacies and um, household and nest building and all this type of thing. And it's also kind of uh, related to how I feel about connection between people at large. So I'm just kind of letting myself go. Um, I find myself uh, sitting for long periods of time out on the balcony with my husband, just observing things. And um, he's a kind of a humorist and a surrealist, or in that neo-surreal school, I call it, you know, um, from Simic to Lux, you know, right. uh, <laughs> with a little Dean Young thrown in. <laughs> and um, I, I have found more light in my work uh, than was there previously. Um, and it keeps me laughing. So there's there's laughter also here and there. Um, uh, and I don't, I don't know if I can find another way to put that. There, there's breath inside of my poetry. You might notice in uh, Blue Tail Fly, the, the poems are all very tight. Very much um, so, yeah. But in the new poems, I find myself sprawling over the page, you know, like bedclothes, you know. And... Um, so it, it's it's very very fascinating, and, and uh, I'm married. I married in my forties, so I really resisted for some time. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to Kate? <laughs> very special man. <laughs> so he, he's quite special. He is. Yeah, um, both of you are are um, movers and shakers in the Detroit lit scene, and I wonder if you talk a little bit about the Snowbound Reading Series at the Scarab Club and the other stuff that's going on there that you're involved in? You facilitate workshops in, in Detroit? Well, I'm, uh, I facilitate uh, about three workshops, but one is, is very, very close to my heart. Um, it was founded by poet Christina Archer. It's called Right Word Right Now. And uh, there are about 10 young people uh, between 23 and 35. And what happened was they were stage performers. Um, or they had degrees in biology, or one has a degree uh, from um, U of M, I think, in philosophy. And they had no formal poetic training. So what I started doing was simply teaching them what I had learned myself. And it just kind of took off. Um, three of them uh, were able to get into Kamekanam. They've started publishing in journals like... Uh, uh, Michigan's Driftwood Review and uh, the Main Street Rag. And it's just all in the last two years, it's just become very exciting. So my husband and I decided to sponsor a series of readings for the students at the Scarab Club. We've got one coming up uh, January 17th at 7 p.m. 
And we also have guests, uh, people who've come in and done workshops for me with them. And on this uh, upcoming January 17th, uh, Roger Fanning. Uh, Ro- Roger, Robert. <laughs> Robert Fanning. Robert's going to kill me. Has Robert, been on the if show. you're listening, <laughs> friends, he's going to listen to me and go, why don't you know my name? Uh, I was thinking about Roger Bonaregard. But uh, Robert Fanning will be... Um, Reading with Tommy Blount and Scheherazade Parish again, uh, January 17th at the Scarab Club. Each reading is different. The voices of all the students are, are very different. Um, Scheherazade's voice is uh, it's the strong and delicate thing. You know, the, the work is fragile, but what she's saying is so powerful. You know, the construction is fragile. And Tommy Blount actually studied a little bit with Diane McCoskey, another Detroiter, and he's fierce, just fierce. And Robert, Robert is Robert. He's, you know, he's been well, published he was on the everywhere. Show, I think in September, um, yeah. right about the time his book came out. I think it was the oh. week his book came out. Oh, his new book is amazing. The Seed Thieves, I love it. So it's a worthy read. Everybody come out. And you're reading soon in Ann Arbor. I am reading on the same day. Oh, how inconvenient. <laughs> oh, it's very inconvenient. Um, I'm reading at um, Shaman Drum um, on January 17th as well. So uh, whatever you're closer to, um, come out. Great. Now, the how would you characterize the... the um, the Detroit scene. You, you you said one of the earlier in the show. You talked a little bit about wanting to be um, in considering an MFA program or, or mm-hmm. in advising people to consider an MFA program. Part of that is to be among a community that um, is really engaged with the printed page and with words yes. on the page. Have you? How have you found that in Detroit? Um, or have you found that in Detroit? It sounds like you have, but well, Detroit. I would really call Detroit a spoken word community, um, a fierce spoken word community. I mean, you you can have 300 people pay a good amount of money to come out and hear people perform their poetry and watch people perform their poetry. Um, there are several venues for performance poets. Um, but for the, say, young person in their 20s who may want to leave the stage for a minute or wants to engage with the page, there are very, very few venues um, to just sit down and listen to uh, poems read from the page in that, you know, that fine tradition of oration. I love that, you know. Um, And and there just aren't a lot of places. There's the zeitgeist, which I think is uh, awesome. Um, And the Scarab Club. And the Scarab Club, yes. Uh, Springfed Arts does uh, a lot of, uh, sponsors a lot of readings at the Scarab Club, M.L. Liebler's group at the Scarab Club, um, at the... and at the library in Birmingham, library in uh, Rochester, I believe. But for for the urban poet, you know, for the for the poet, you know, the city poet, you know, for the poet with serious edge, you know, but wanting to be on the page, there are just so few places to go. Um, and you kind of build your community by stretching out. You know, you go to the zeitgeist and you meet people. Um, I happen to uh, work for Inside Out, um, which is kind of dedicated to 
bringing poetics to high schoolers and and elementary school kids. and elementary school kids, right? And um, so many of the people who work for Inside Out are, are marvelous with the page, you know. And you meet them, but it's still a very tiny, tiny uh, page community, contemporary page community. Um, I think the whole community is sort of tiny, <laughs> but, yeah, but here yeah. in Ann Arbor, we're very lucky. There are several places where, where readings happen, you know, not only at the university here, but also at Shaman Drum. Right. And, you know, the audience for spoken word there, they are, they have a certain set of expectations. So I don't usually um, take gigs for, you know, at, at a spoken word venue because I can, I can no longer meet those expectations. Um, as a matter of fact, I was sitting at um, a reading somewhere and uh, the gentleman who was hosting said, oh, yes, and uh, Vivi Francis is here. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, yay, <laughs> somebody knows me. And then he said, and we like all kinds of poetry here, even if it bores us or, or something like this. And um, I said to myself, oh, my goodness, okay. <laughs> So, if you know it's time to leave the stage, when? So, well, so unfortunately, that's yeah. also going to be about the time we have to wrap up this show. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I I like the expect I like the audience that expects the page. You know, right now that that's kind of where my head's at. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for reading both from your book, Blue Tail Fly, and also from some of your newer work. Thank you it's again. Been it's been wonderful. And uh, Vivi Francis will be reading on the 17th of January at Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. And there's a reading in Detroit at the Scarab Club at the same time of a bunch of poets, including um, Robert Fanning, who has been, been on this show. You have been listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Brett, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Please stay tuned. When you wake up in the morning, hear the ding-dong ring. You go marching to the table. You see the same old things all on one table. Knife, a fork, and a pan. And if you say a thing about it, you're in trouble with a man who led the midnight special. Shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a heavy loving light on me. Oh,